0: Fundamentally, the roles of universities are to educate the next generation and to generate new knowledge through research. And the other dimension of universities now is their local and civic and public engagement roles. So, in other words, we extend beyond our boundaries and try and influence society more generally.
1: Hi, I'm Beldred Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Jenny Hyam, Principal at St. George's University of London and a working doctor. She shares with us her experience of the tensions top leaders face as they navigate authenticity, confidentiality, financial pressures, and an ever expanding set of aspirations for the organization. She also describes how she balances the need for leadership from the top with an open inclusive approach to strategy development. And she shares a simple tip for what to do when something major makes big parts of your strategy no longer relevant. Uh, Jenny, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, Maybe just as a way to get going, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and about St. George's.
0: Delighted. So uh, my name is Jenny Hyam, and I'm still a practicing doctor and have been for many years now. But alongside that, the vast majority of my time is taken up leading St. George's University of London. I did a hybrid career combining clinical activity with academic activity, spent many years at Imperial College London, and also did an amazing project in Singapore for six years and came to St. George's nearly six years ago now to lead the institution.
1: If you could, could you sort of sum up what the purpose of St. George's is?
0: St. George's is a specialist health sciences university that... It's known because it trains a whole range of healthcare professionals, but also does a great deal of world-class research. In particular areas, it's very famous for infection and immunity is one example. We've been going since 1733, and some of our very illustrious alumni are the pioneers around infection and vaccinations, such as Jenner. And we're Proud of that brand, we feel as though we contribute a great deal to what society needs, and that was exemplified by the recent pandemic. And the other slightly unusual thing about us is we share our site with a major hospital trust. A lot of people know it from Twenty Four Hours in A and E. We obviously have discrete parts within that large campus, which is as big as Westfield in Shepherd's Bush. But that's another somewhat unusual feature of where we are.
1: That sort of almost seems like just a, a statement of who you are. Do you have a sense that there's some bigger, higher purpose beyond that? I, no, which is not to minimize anything in what you said. That's a that's a fantastic cause and a mission. But I'm just wondering, do you see anything sort of bigger than that?
0: I mean, fundamentally the roles of universities are to educate the next generation and to generate new knowledge through research. And the other dimension of universities now is their local and civic and public engagement role. So, in other words, we extend beyond our boundaries and try and influence society more generally.
1: It sounds like the first bit of that's been around since almost since the, you know the hospital was founded in 1733, if I remember right. Uh, But the second bit about the sort of community piece, is that something that was developed since you've come there or was that something that had been around before then?
0: I have to say, I think the focus in the whole sector, the university sector, has turned more to thinking about this. There's a variety of pushes and pulls for that. First of all, not wanting to be seen as remote from the community and being seen part of the community, and it's all part of making universities accessible. There is also the very genuine desire to draw from your local community, and it used to be called widening participation, but now it's access and participation, but reaching out to try and encourage those who were underrepresented within university settings and encourage them to consider that a degree or higher education is actually for them. They're not excluded from it and they will succeed if they do.
1: And how did that come about? Was that kind of given to you as a directive or was there a group that came together in the university to kind of look at that question, decide what to do about it. I'm assuming you're at a place where you're doing things about it. So how did you get to the point where you decided you needed to do something
0: about it? I think we've been doing it for a long time, but now it's monitored by the Office for Students. So on the one hand, we are sort of forced into a position as are all universities and a proportion of our income has to be dedicated to this cause. But I don't find that regulation and demand for it anything other than reinforcing of what I'd like to do what I'd like to do and what I think is really important is that we're in an extremely diverse part of London London itself is very diverse but what is not necessarily diverse are the people that come and study here the people who think that they could say become a therapeutic radiographer or a doctor And there's a lot of class barriers, color barriers, educational barriers, aspiration barriers. And I think that you get, for the point of view of science and healthcare, the best delivery if you garner talents from all parts and you prevent groupthink. I think that if I look at my earlier career, you know, when I first joined medical school, there was virtually no representation. It was fundamentally white. I was a grammar school person, but very white public school boy and girl background, so reaped privilege. And I'm not saying that those individuals didn't make tremendous contributions, but I don't think that they represent the patients, and I think we make such better doctors' decisions, society, public health, everything is much better informed by a wider and broader perspective.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does that purpose kind of help in your strategic decision making?
0: Well, first of all, you have to make it your business, and you have to make it count. And you have to be sincere about it. You have to return to it. You have to stand up and be vocal to say this is what we stand for and it matters. It's not just a tick box. It's not just because we need to make this return. It's because we really care about it. So I think that people have a real whiff of insincerity. People can smell it when you don't really mean it. I think that it's also a fantastic point of engagement with our students because so many of them have come and they're the first in their families to go to university and they, the students who are far closer to the age of, say, the school students that we help tutor, we have a program, for example, with local schools where we go out and our students assist those more junior students, with their GCSEs, so that they get better grades with their science GCSEs, a very direct impact on them being more eligible, basically ticking off the academic boxes and barriers to coming to medical school. So uh, Science Stars, that's an interesting uh, and very successful programme. It's just proven we've tracked it, and they do get higher grades with that input, and it's a value both to the community and the individual school student, but also to our students. Another example is mentoring, and somebody like me is seen as too remote, not appropriate, but for our individual students on various programmes to be having a direct conversation with prospective students about what life is like, about what is the process of university application, about Your life experience to put into your personal statement, that again is a very directly and beneficial relationship for both parties.
1: Mm. So it sounds to some extent that you're you're kind of using the access you've got, the people who've joined you who maybe aren't quite from that same mold that was there when you got involved in the profession, to create more access, to create more diversity.
0: The only thing I would say in challenge to that is I think that. All people from all walks of life want to do that piece of work. I wouldn't say it's only those from that background. We have really enthusiastic support across the board from students with a great variety of backgrounds and staff. So we have a number of very active staff groups as well. Uh, changing tax slightly, say black lives matter and issues related to race, etc. We've had a lot of conversations and at the table we've wanted the views of our black and ethnic minority students, which it's entirely appropriate, but they have objected to spending hours and hours and hours of their time freely giving advice and information to us for our benefit and we hope their benefit free of charge, given that they hadn't created this issue in the first place. And so we have taken on paying students. We have a student ambassador program and paying them for their time to realize they are experts for their experience. And we rely on their expertise and input. And I make no apology for paying them. I think it's appropriate.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you had to stand back and think about the entire sort of university as a whole is there something you'd say here's our strategy
0: well i think it's uh, along the lines of furthering healthcare science and healthcare delivery doing it better another example around you know sort of going beyond our boundaries is we have really successful evenings they used to be crowded pre covid days called Spotlight on Science. And so we take an area of research, take an area of interest, TB, HIV, cessation of smoking, something, and then create an hour and a half of education, practice, debate, and hugely popular with the local population, patients, members of the public, some school students aspiring perhaps to join healthcare courses, but the Spotlight on Science series has been a huge success.
1: Mm -hmm. Let me, if you don't mind, kind of come at the question of strategy from a slightly different angle. Every organisation, and I'm sure yours included, doesn't have all the resources they'd want to do everything they might want to do. How do you go about figuring out where you're going to allocate resources? How do you decide, you know, what's the most important stuff for us and what's other stuff that we'd love to do, but we just can't do it now or we can't do as much as we'd like?
0: Well, there's a hierarchy in the sense that I am, unfortunately, in an institution with very small margins and very little profit. And so the hierarchy in terms of where I'd like to invest is tempered with the fact that I have lots of high-risk science and lots of areas of the campus and our activities that are hugely highly regulated, carry risk with them, and also potential for prosecution. So my decisions about investment have to start with those that we could end up in prison over. Mm. And You'd be surprised how many of there are relative to that list. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at human capital, for example, equality, diversity, and inclusivity, That's an ever-increasing breadth of areas, and I think that realistically you can't say that gender inequality, ethnic dis trans rights, disability, if, if everything is a priority, then you do have to take on various campaigns or focus from time to time because to make a meaningful intervention or to make a meaningful change requires a lot of effort in my experience and that's partly done because we consider what's the next thing we're going to do but sometimes it's reactive to other circumstances
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's the process you go through i'm sort of imagining every year every few years you try and step back and ask, what next? What's important for us going forward? What are the priorities? Because I agree with you, it can't be that everything's a priority. What's that process look like?
0: Well, when we set the sort of five-year strategy, it's a really good opportunity the last time we did this very broadly was to get out to the entire community to have lots of open events. And the strategy is, of course, around research, education, civic engagement, but it's also about values and about work and environment and the type of place we want to be in terms of to work, but also in the environment in which we want to create, in which to study. And it was great to have so much engagement. And, of course, people want to be paid more and work less, you know, those sort of tricisms. But not surprisingly, it is about commitment, respect, engagement. It is about higher impact research. It is about making students feel more included. So perhaps the eventual outputs aren't that surprising. But I think there's great value in the process of discussing, refining, thinking about what we are and perhaps what makes us distinctive.
1: Mm -hmm. You used the word engagement a fair amount. It it also sounds to me like part of your approach to developing your strategy is deliberately, by design, inclusive. It's not just a small group somewhere that goes into a conference room and ta-da, comes out, but that it's a process that involves a lot of different people. I mean, would that be a fair way of characterising?
0: I think that First of all, leaders should lead. And I don't think that you can abdicate responsibility to lead. But I do think that, in terms of the number of things that truly need to be top down and autocratic, are actually very small. The vast majority of things are potential to be openly engaged with, to hear different views, to make people feel included. Now, lots of people you put any method of engagement, you'll always be disappointed that only a proportion of people come forward. But I still think you send the right signal by sending the invitation in the first place.
1: Mm -hmm. Kind of one other sort of question on this kind of what's in the purpose what's in the strategy, given that there's such huge public and media focus on climate change and the net zero agenda, does that need to be part of any organization's kind of purpose and strategy to be successful? Or is it like, no, no, lots of other people are worried about that, but we'll kind of do what they say we need to do, but we're not putting that front and center.
0: I definitely think we all have a responsibility there. And and even if the differences that we can make are relatively small, it's still a contribution. So the answer is yes, we do. Our degrees of freedom are limited, perhaps, I and mean, we do all the things you would expect in terms of looking at our investment strategy, trying to look at greener energy sources, recycling, looking at our supply chain. The distressing thing within the health services with the pandemic, the use of disposables and masks and all that, you know, I mean, it goes entirely counter often to a green agenda. So one always has to be pragmatic and realistic in that there is a tension with, with these things. But I wouldn't say our students and staff, if there was a hierarchy of things, there are a percentage of committed individuals to it and a warmth of reception to the idea very broadly that we should be doing this sort of thing, and we do what we can. But I wouldn't say it's the first thing that we champion in the morning. And that's perhaps not surprising, given the specialist focus of what we do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you think about both how you've developed your strategy and how you've taken it forward, Is there anything in that whole process that you're particularly proud of?
0: Personally, I would say it would be the level of engagement and and the collaborative effort. I found actually the process of creating the strategy really gratifying and an opportunity. I was relatively new in the organisation. We are currently in the moment of pursuing a new strategy or changing the strategy somewhat. Because you set the strategy and then you create a number of key performance indicators. And then lots of external things develop and change. And so the frustration is you can't necessarily measure progress around the KPIs that you originally set for yourself. And then the other thing is, is that if you have the strategy, to what extent do you constantly remind people around that this is the strategy and use it as a tool in an ongoing basis? We certainly use the strategy in terms of investment decisions over the relatively small pot that we have. We try and make sure that spending is aligned to the areas that we want to reinforce. I'm most proud of the fact that we collaboratively got together and wrote it. I would question myself as to whether I've optimally used it as a tool, particularly with increasing years since we made it.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and and so, if I remember right, you said you sort of came up with it uh, five, six years ago, and now you're you're in the midst of refreshing.
0: It's four years ago now.
1: Yes, four years ago. Okay, it sounds like part of what you're talking about there is just the the world changes faster than the the strategy does. Is is there anything you've contemplated about how you can address that. I mean, you talked about KPIs, you know, often they made sense when you set them, but now the world's changed and they're not really helping. You don't have to have the magic bullet for this. I don't think anybody does, but just wondering if there's anything, you know, in there that you're thinking, yeah, there's something we're going to add or change or do differently that will help us address the fact that the world changes, even though we, we only come back to the strategy every now and then.
0: To a certain extent, I would say don't be restricted by your strategy. You have to be nimble and you have to be responsive. I think you need to challenge yourself and make a case for diversion from the strategy. But you can't necessarily wait until you've written a new strategy to take that opportunity. Say, for example, broadly speaking, we had a research portfolio that was actually amongst a variety of themes. Along came the pandemic a number of those streams of research were impossible to prosecute because of the restrictions related to the pandemic so we pivoted and turned a lot of our activity towards covid research covid vaccines and you could say that that proportion of, of our research activity was out with the strategic plan but i would say in terms of the larger goals of the institution, that was a really good example of being flexible and nimble in circumstances. So it wasn't as though I decided to become a candy floss seller rather than run a university. It wasn't that different, but it was an example of nimbleness and flexibility with the strategy.
1: Maybe I may be wrong, but a, a shift in mindset around the strategy. When we said it, that's what we intend to do. But after that, it sort of becomes a reference mark that we may need to veer off of rather than just slavishly follow it.
0: I'm not a particularly good rule. You're
1: not a good rule follower. <laughs>
0: so I do believe that life in general is open to a great deal of interpretation. And I'm much more concerned with the outcome. Mm-hmm. Than I am necessarily dogmatically, slavishly staying to the process. So, and that's in some circumstances a strength, and in some other circumstances, a weakness.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe launching off of that, any tips or suggestions for other leaders who are wrestling with this whole challenge of what's our purpose? How do we convert that into a strategy? What do we do when things change? Any suggestions for others?
0: For me, authenticity is really important. I think that leadership is, the more senior you go, the more observed you are, the more that you need to only whisper. You don't need a megaphone anymore because people sure are listening, if they still respect you, or indeed they're plotting your demise. So I find it very difficult to be disingenuous when I stand up. There are occasions when you have to be slightly political, But in general, I always try and align really closely what I'm genuinely thinking and feeling and what is the actuality with what I'm saying. And that sometimes won't necessarily be exactly the same as your original strategy. But it's much more comfortable in many ways to do that, And I think your people smell you if they don't think you're genuine. And if you're asking people to do difficult things or you're asking them to follow you, I think that they want that authenticity.
1: And what's the impact on you personally been over the course of the last four or five years? You know, how how are you different or what have you learned in the course of all that?
0: More resilient. <laughs> Some of the worst things came out of left field and you weren't anticipating them. And the things that you're really worried about actually in the event they never came to pass or they weren't as bad as you thought. So the thing that doesn't surprise me, but has been reinforced by the last four or five years is the importance of your team, respecting your team and having diverse voices and facilitating diverse voices around the table. So that people do challenge you and say, Well, that's okay, but have you thought about? And amongst my I have an inner circle of a senior management team, but also a much wider outer circle of what we call principals advisory group. And I touch in with them every week or every couple of weeks. And I genuinely, I want to hear what they think. I want to know what's bothering them. And I want them also to be able to do a bit of a pitch in terms of what's bothering them and this week I've got this inspection coming and I'm really not that happy. And then somebody over here in the state says, oh, blimey, well, that's the day that we've got such and such coming. Or did you not hear about that big report that's going to happen? And so you create a web of dialogue. And I think it means that there's less chance of things completely falling through it and being missed. And as a leader, There are occasional things that are totally top secret that only a very small number of individuals should have any party to. But the vast majority of business can be conducted in an open way, in a collegiate way, in a I'd like to hear what you think about this way. And as I say, I think that that type of inclusion, I think it does lead to better decisions but it also stops you going completely off-beam, and then it's almost much more effort to sort of launch something and be off-target, and then to rein it back in. Much better that you've been given the hint that actually this isn't going to land well before you've landed it.
1: Mm -hmm. I like that phrase you use there, web of dialogue. That really resonated with me.
0: I enjoy being a leader, and I enjoy my team, and you get really horrible days. You really do. But overall, I far rather be in the driving seat. The most stressful times in my own career was when I was trying to manage up and manage down. And so I'm not saying it's nirvana, but I still would definitely recommend getting to the top.
1: I love that. That's probably a pretty good note to end on. Uh, can can I say Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your honesty and your candor. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks. Bye.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.